Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I was just accustomed to people listening to me. Right. Because I was the boss. And I was accustomed to like my idea ultimately being deeply considered or at least admired in some way. And then, you know, had the experience very early at the ready of like, the proposer of idea and being like, Rodney, I heard you and no, thank you. Next. And I was like, whoa, Whoa. (laughs) what? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be silly today. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to talk about the state of decision-making. And I like the idea that that is a state, like it's the 51st state in America. Perfect. Yeah, go there. We'll make a flag. <laughs> we'll go live there where people can make them. But before we do that, let's do a check-in round. Okay. I love it. Let's check in. Today's check-in question is a fun one. It's in some ways maybe a little nostalgic or possibly traumatic. Um, when and how did you learn to ride a bicycle? So, Rodney, why don't you go first since this was your question? So when I was a child, we lived on a corner in a very beautiful town in Illinois that was a suburb of Chicago. And there was a huge park right down the street. And every night, my parents and I, after dinner, would walk to the park and walk around this lake. And I rode my bike that had training wheels. And so I was young because we we moved out of that town when I was five. So I was like pretty little. Okay. And then one day, it's a good thing my mom doesn't listen to this podcast because she'd probably be like, that is not what happened. One day, I feel like they just got a bee in their bonnet that it was time for training wheels to be done. And I distinctly remember them taking me to the park, taking the training wheels off my bike, sitting on the bike, and one of them just pushing me like down a low grade hill and being like, pedal. Figure it and out. there was definitely a tree in front of me. <laughs> and I did a, like a pretty good job balancing. But then, of course, I didn't know how to stop. So I kind of just like bailed off the bike. But right before I hit the tree. Amazing. And that was how I learned. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's how I learned. That's how I learned a lot of things. I, a friend was just also telling me about teaching her kid to swim. And I also distinctly remember being dropped in the deep end sort of, flung, of a flung pool. In. Yeah. yeah. So deep into the pool style was my parents' only tactic to teach me something new. Uh-huh. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. That and bike riding was no exception to that. Super interesting uh, and scary. I Interestingly, <laughs> I when I was very young, like two years old, I walked into the deep end on my own um, and sunk to the bottom promptly. 
So, so I, you know, different strokes, right? <laughs> Parented myself <laughs> or nearly to death. Strokes, yeah, as it exactly. were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm to maintain a, a terrible <laughs> swimming ability to this day. In any case, my the way I learned to ride a bike was in a cul-de-sac. We lived mm. in a little neighborhood. We lived on a on a street called Treebeard Circle in St. Louis. Treebeard. Treebeard. Kind That's of the worst name. name for a street. I think it's fun. It's very like hobbity. It's very Lord of the Rings. Boo. Um, and we we. I had a little, yeah, a little like BMX style bike with training wheels and rode that around in the cul-de-sac, but I wanted to take them off. My parents were like, you're not ready to take them off, Aaron, Mm. at all. And just like the deep end, I was like, well, but I am ready. So I sawed them off in the garage under the cover of night uh, with a, with a wood saw, which is not a great tool to use when you're- When you were how old? Like five. Jeez. Like five or six. And so I was sawing them off. And then, and then shortly thereafter, after I got, you know, punished for that, went out in the, in the cul-de-sac and did the kind of, kind of like ride in a circle with your dad's hand on the seat thing uh-huh. with my dad yeah. until I kind of had the knack of it. Looking back now, I will say, and I love this check-in question, watching kids learn to ride bikes now, now while they have balance bikes when they're two, right. three, four years old, it's a totally different game. It's like we were, we were trying to learn how to do something completely the wrong way. Yeah. You know, throwing you down the hill, me with the training wheels. None of that works at all. These balance bikes, I've seen kids four years old now just tooling around the neighborhood on a regular bike. And it's like, how'd you learn this? Well, I had a balance bike since I could stand, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's the way. It's been improved, much improved. and, And the trauma of our early experiences will not be relived. No, I definitely remember my dad saying that he was going to keep a hand on the seat of my bike. Yeah, in theory. In theory, but then, you know, hills and also Uh he was fast and... Yeah, who has trust issues? I mean, really. It's a, I mean, it is a mystery where they came from. I, I feel know. some of those dad instincts, though. I get it at some level. It's like you kind of want to you want to get these birds out of the nest. They, I mean, they had a lot of confidence in me. I'll give them that. Yeah. Well, here we are. We both know how to ride. <laughs> you know who doesn't know how to ride a bike? And then I promise we can make an episode. Is my husband? Tell me it's tell me it's Ed. Yeah, it is Ed because he grew up on the Upper East Side, and yeah. his parents were very insistent about him swimming. Mm. So he started swimming when he was two, and he's like a very very strong long distance ocean swimmer. <laughs> Dude cannot ride a two wheeler, and I have put him in so many traumatic situations, including a bike trip through the Mekong, where I was like, "You'll be fine." Anyone can ride a bike. And he was like, I can't. I can't. And uh, he was correct. And I was oh. not. I was, I stood corrected. He spent most of that tour with the van driver going to random roadside establishments. It's rare that a strong swimmer can't be a triathlete, but Ed is, it, <laughs> he's off that list. He could definitely run and swim and the biking portion. <laughs> yeah. I, That's I think an we've unusual given up. combo. Yeah, yeah. I think we've given up. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So today's topic is the woeful state. That's its that's its official slogan. That's right. The woeful state of decision-making. We need to decide what bird represents that state. Mm-hmm. And I want to start by asking you, like, haven't we already made this episode, mm, I don't know, two or three times? The state bird is the albatross. Um, we Oh, snap. That was <laughs> very good. Very, um, very well played. Well, we've sir. never had claps on the show. Um, <laughs> maybe that should be a thing from now on. <laughs> I, we have talked about decision-making a lot on the show, and we've talked about authority a lot on the show. What I feel like we haven't talked about and that I wanted to get into today for, for selfish reasons is the disconnect between the way the average person makes decisions in the world today, the way the average organization approaches decision-making, what good looks like, 
and what some of the impediments are to unlocking that. So not so much what good decisioning is by itself or what's wrong with the world, but actually like this gap between what we all know is not working and how to actually fix it. And what Mm -hmm. are some of the things that stand in the way of that ideologically, structurally, systemically, et cetera. Because my experience is that for most firms, certainly from, from a pretty small size on like 25 people up, maybe even smaller than that, there very quickly becomes question of like, who can make what decisions? Sure. And, and it usually results in initially a lot of dependence on the founder or leader or leaders that, that are, that are present in the early days, such that like everything flows to the approver. And then when they get a little bit too big for that to happen, where there's too many decisions for someone to weigh in on or a combination of people to weigh in on, then it really and truly breaks. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the status quo default move is the way we fix this is by having more teachers and parents and police officers and essentially like power figures in the system. We need layers. And so we create layers and those layers become single points of decisioning and approval. And then we basically just play that game forever. It's like the bigger we get, the more layers we have and the more those people, more power those people have. But it's a single player game in a way. Um, which is like, who's the power holder that's going to make these decisions versus those decisions? And yeah. where does the buck stop? And where who's accountable? And all that kind of stuff. So that that is the that's the status quo. And I'm I've been grappling with the the combination of realities that on the one hand, everybody knows that isn't working very well. Most most of the people that we talk to are like decision making yeah. is not going great. And yeah. and it seems like this very intractable problem, like not getting fixed anytime soon. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to dig into it with you and see if we can come up with anything new. Okay, great. Well, this is fun territory. <laughs> I love talking about decision making. It's my favorite field of the canvas to work in, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's everything. So here's where I think it would be fun to start, based on what you see, and I'll chime in too. What do you think that decision making processes in general are designed to do? You mean the the status quo approach? Yeah, to the current making? state. Yeah, it it feels to me, and this is actually a question I don't have a great answer for, like preloaded in the in the taser cannon, whatever. But by the way, <laughs> side that note, taser cannon. I, I, sometime. Now, hang on, I'll, I'll, I have to explain why that's on my mind. I was looking for a weed torch to torch some weeds in our gravel around our garden beds. Definitely not what I thought you meant by weed torch. Carry on. And no, well, fair enough. And and I am in Colorado, so all things are possible. I guess you could use it for both. And I did a web search and I discovered a plasma cannon, which what? is a which is a, a and I invite anyone to Google that if they want to. But it was it was a a flamethrower essentially that runs on plasma. <laughs> And it shot flames like 50 feet in the air, like incredibly powerful, terrifying piece of machinery. So now that's on my wish list. In any case, the, anyway. the reality is that the, the current state of decision making, I think, is designed to reinforce this idea of like, who's to blame and mm. who's in charge and what, how do we make sure that we know who is accountable? It feels to me like it's much more optimized for and I'm going to use a a term of corporate America that I think is really gross. It's more about whose throat to choke. Oh, gross. Than it is about, than it is about like, how do we make excellent decisions? 
mm-hmm. it feels like it is implied or assumed that if someone is in power, they will make excellent decisions, which is mm-hmm. complete bullshit. Very flawed. Um, and instead, it's optimized for like, at least we know who's to blame. And yeah. we know who's accountable and we know who's ultimately like where the buck stops. And that seems to be what matters most is that clarity of like, this is a design decision. So it's Phil's thing. And that means that we know exactly where it's going to happen and who's either to be encouraged and, and applauded or to be blamed and punished and fired. And that like simplicity seems to be the like first design principle. Mm. But I don't, what have you tuned into? Like what, what other... What other design principles are at play? I think most decision-making processes in most organizations are about eliminating as much risk as possible, which is dumb. Yeah, sure. It's just dumb. I think it's about the elimination of mistakes and the elimination of risk. And the example that I always use when I like talk to groups about organizational debt, the example that I always use is like, okay, imagine that you're working in a bank and one of the tellers makes a mistake. What is the thing that comes next? And people in the audience either say they fire the teller, which is your point, or they add like an approval or another pair of eyes or another something to the process. And it's like, yes, both of those things are deeply flawed because what we end up with is layers upon layers upon layers to avoid a mistake that might not have actually been that big of a deal, might not have ever happened again. And the cost of mitigating the possibility of that particular flavor of mistake happening again usually is very expensive. but What I think happens, and I saw this a lot when I worked for an investment bank, Mm -hmm. what I think happens is there's so much pressure that like if there's a mistake made, uh, particularly if it's costly, which happens, if there's a mistake made and we don't like do something, we don't don't install some sort of control that we're like being irresponsible. Mm. And so it's like, okay, you know, one time someone interpreted the policy in this particular way as they were leaving the bank and our lawyers couldn't, you know, argue it with them. And so now we have to rewrite the policy and spend six months pushing that policy to 80,000 employees. And it's like, or we could just like pay them the 10 grand and move on. Cause like, honestly, who fucking cares? Right. Uh, But it's like, I think it becomes the, like the, fabric of the culture is just like, we need to avoid mistakes at any cost. And if we make them, we need to demonstrate that we have done something about it so they will never happen again. Regardless of whether that thing costs more than the mistake, regardless of whether the mistake is likely to be repeated. And, you know, when we we see things like the financial crisis that happened, it's like (laughs) most of the controls that were put in place uh, retroactively are not going to, like the next crisis is not going to be the same thing. So, exactly. You know, exactly. That's how that I just think that's how that generally goes. Why so I guess jumping off from that in both of our examples we're really talking about a, a chain of command mm. like this you know it's it's who's accountable or who's responsible or where's the like new layer but it's all it all still is this like idea of this to this to this to this to this in terms yeah. of authority and decision making. I'm curious why you think we as a culture as a society don't really traffic in making a lot of decisions together. Oh. Right? It feels like most of our systems are, le- with with a very few notable exceptions, are like, 
either you're asking for permission or asking for a decision or you're making a decision, but it's very rare in society to be like, we're making a decision together. Mm, That's really interesting. Well, I think in organizations that have consensus-driven decision-making, they believe that they are making a decision together. Okay. Like, I think that's what that feels like when it's like, I have this proposal and it's in a PowerPoint deck and I had 14 pre-meetings to get everybody lined up and comfortable and I incorporated all their shitty suggestions so that they would feel like included in the process. And then when I presented at the big meeting, everybody goes like, here's a curveball question, Rodney. And then I answer (laughs) that. And then at the end, they're like, okay, now I feel good about this. And then we say yes. And we feel like we made that decision together. Right. Which isn't really what you mean, I think, when you say making a decision together. Yeah. Well, in some ways, I feel like that what that is, is like preparing a decision together. Uh huh. Um, but actually, the point of decision is still happening at that last meeting, in theory. There's still like some person or some moment where it's like, we good? And I think, and it probably is a spectrum to your point, and it's probably unfair for me to paint it as completely singular. There, There is every kind of boardroom you can imagine, I, w- I would think, where you have like, Maybe the person who has the authority asks everyone what they think before they make the decision. There are situations where they don't. There are situations where that meeting doesn't happen at all. But I do, I do feel, generally speaking, that like everyone's always looking to someone. Yeah. Like, well, we're all doing this dance in this theater, but there's still the person that everyone looks to, and it's like, so are we doing this? Right. Um, right. And that, and that person has, you know, is a manager or a leader or whatever. And it feels like the same thing is mostly true in school, as I recall. Like teachers make decisions, students enact those decisions. And when students do things together, it's rare that they get to actually make any decisions together. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe on the playground. Mm-hmm. Like decisions are made on the playground, Lord of the Flies style. Mm-hmm. But, but in the classroom, I don't recall being asked to make a lot of decisions collectively in, mm-hmm. my, in my educational experience. Yeah, I think that's true. And usually I mean, when we did, it was bad. Like you made a bad decision? Well, like we, like they would be like, you're a working group of four and you need to do a project, go figure it out. And then we essentially were doing what now we would call chartering the team, uh-huh. but just like with absolutely no skills or information. With no skills. Yeah. yeah. You know, just basically yeah. by social status and like intellectual reputation. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that we're particularly socialized, at least in America, to be like agentic as mm-hmm. humans, which mm-hmm. is funny because it's like we have the worst of both worlds. It's like yeah. we're both super, super independent and like mercenary and not community minded and collective and also have like a ton of learned helplessness. Right. Where it's like someone should, you know, someone should, someone right. should do this. And it's funny because by the time this episode airs, this will be like long in the rear view mirror. But like <laughs> uh, Aaron and I just like recently talked about a thing with the whole company and asked people for questions. And a lot of the questions that came back were like, could we do X? Mm. And I'm like, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Like if you're, are you asking me to do that? Cause mm. I don't want to. Right. Are you asking if you can do that? Cause I don't can. need to give you permission for that. Right. So like what, what is going on here? And yeah, yeah, and yeah. to me, that is learned from working in other systems. Sure. Like, I just don't think that generally we show up to any group 
with a lot of practice around being like, where are my my guardrails? I'm going to like act right up against them. You know, as you taught me when we first started working together, like I I also was not socialized to like make the tension and yeah. like push against the authority that I had. I was taught to like not know what those guardrails were and then also <laughs> seek permission and approval and then also feel like then if I messed up, the person who gave me permission or approval was really at right. fault, not me. Right. So, you know, there's rational reasons. Totally. Totally. But it's also just a lack of rep. Yeah. And I think as listening to you talk, I think I've thought of a third reason, which comes up a lot. I think we have a, a latent fear that if we were to try to do anything really together where we didn't have like a clear tiebreaker, mm-hmm. then we would be inefficient. Oh, yeah. Right? Like yeah. if, if Aaron and Rodney both have to agree that we're going to go to lunch somewhere, then that's going to be like a long conversation, right? It'll be way, it's much better if we can have someone who just makes the call. Except that know? it won't because obviously we're going to go where Aaron wants to go to lunch because I never Hilarious. care well, and I'm true. always going to just go. That's true. You've, you've actually granted me that decision, right? Exactly. Um, but yeah, I do. I really believe that when we, when we talk to groups, I think when I ask the question of like, why does yeah. every team need a boss? Usually mm. what I hear is like tiebreaker, efficiency, this, you know, mastery, like person who knows better. And to your point, prevent mistakes, prevent all these, you know, nut jobs from doing the wrong stuff with, with the tacit assumption that like, because someone's the boss, they must have skills and information that the other mm-hmm. people don't have. Right. The other people are not as fully fledged adult as that person. Right. So they're going to need, they're going to need some help. And it's weird because my my lived experience is that there's no question that in different situations, people in the room have more information or more skill or more ability or more experience or more intelligence. Like that stuff is all very real. And so to that point, like I wouldn't want someone who's never ever painted a picture to be in charge of painting the mural in the office. But what is also true is like those contexts shift too much for me to be comfortable with a single leadership paradigm. Yeah. Where it's like, well, yeah, in a painting scenario, yeah, obviously that's that. But what about in a cooking scenario? Yeah. And suddenly like we're all different people. And I feel like somehow work wants to simplify us into being like, well, you're a leader and you're a follower and the context doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's reminding me. <laughs> I did this project with Allie and there was this one like super annoying team. And Mm -hmm. I basically was like, yeah, I'm not going to work with them because I don't want to. (laughs) And it was just like a bunch of like really egoic, fairly old school men who just wanted to like argue about everything. And I was like, I have earned the right to not engage in this as my job. And I was like, free zone. I was like, you can also not engage in this if you don't want to, but I'm not going to be there if you do. (laughs) And Allie was like, you know, Allie is so like, I can take that hill, which she did. But I'm saying this as set up because I remember there had been a decision that really required cross-functional participation and points of view. And there was a a cross-functional meeting of the people whose points of view needed to be integrated. And Allie was like, shall we try Mm-hmm. an integrative decision-making process. And the lead of this team truly spent like 25 minutes arguing with her about a decision-making process that he had never seen or yeah. tried. Yep. And and her point back was that she was like, we could be done with this by now. Like right. we could have integrated the perspectives of these four leaders yep. in this room 
in the time that it took you to litigate something that you've never even seen or tried. So like there is a real, like it's, and like, you know, that was an extreme example, but I do feel like there is a resistance to trying to do this a different way. And Mm -hmm. I, and I know like my own personal ego reaction when I started learning IDM was just, I had come from situations where like, I was just accustomed to people listening to me. Right. Because I was the boss and I was accustomed to like my idea ultimately being deeply considered or at least admired in some way. And then, you know, had the experience very early at the ready of like the proposer of idea and being like, Rodney, I heard you and no, thank you. Next. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, Whoa. (laughs) what (laughs) What just happened? Um, And now I I'm so used to that. It doesn't feel weird at all. But I don't know. We have a lot of socialization around not that. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So here's, here's where I want to go next. I, and I've been waiting to kind of ask you this the whole, the whole episode. God, well, let's do it then. So we, we recently combed through the, the murmur waitlist contains 2,400 organizations. Dang, Uh, that's amazing, y'all. Good job. It's pretty wild. I still don't fully understand it, to be honest, but it's, I mean, like, I'm very grateful for it, but it is amazing. And what's interesting is we've asked every single one of those waitlisters what problem they think we're going to solve for them. Mm-hmm. And in different phrasings, but like mm-hmm. over the course of that history, that's that's what we've asked. And so we have all these answers. And so what I did in the last week for, I guess, fun, for, for entertainment value, is I mapped each one of those answers to a, a visual framework of different kinds of work problems. Mm-hmm. So like team performance, scaling, organizational change, the way we work, employee experience and decision making. And yeah. what was interesting is the like the vast majority of them talk about decision making as like the focal point of their problem. Mm-hmm. We need to fix like decision making is not working well at our company and we want to make it better. Here's my question for you. That's the pain everybody's feeling. That's the problem everybody's feeling. Yeah. Is decision making the problem or the symptom of the problem? Oh, geez. Mm-hmm. Well, we it's funny. We can explore this together, but like, Let's do I'm it. curious. Yeah. Well, here's what's really funny is I had really bad insomnia last night and I was yeah. thinking about how... Also, it's so nice that we have clients where like when I have an insomnia <laughs> fever dream about something, then I can slack one of our clients and be like, hey... What do you think about this? And then they say something really smart back to me. So here's the thing I slacked to one of our clients this morning after my insomnia dream. Okay. I said, every team I'm talking to is naming their primary issues as role clarity and decision making right now. Is this a thing that has come to the fore because of remote slash hybrid work? Like, I believe lack of role clarity and decision architecture was always present. But is it just that now we're noticing? Yeah, okay. For the first time. So... I'm not saying that like that is the answer in terms of the root cause. She was like, it's way worse than it was before. The distributed nature of work is what's making the pain felt in a way that it wasn't felt before. And that (laughs) pre-pandy, we were more accepting of centralized decision-making and more implicit decision-making. Like we're in the room and Aaron says, let's do this. And we all kind of go like, yeah, let's do that. And then we like leave the room and we go like, a decision was made here today, which A, it wasn't. And B, (laughs) we have no way of carrying it forward. Right. But it felt like we did a thing. And now 
we didn't make the decision and it's not being carried forward. And we didn't even have the let's or we should moment where we felt like maybe we agreed to something. So I think it's like, I think it's a, a, you know, a perfect storm Mm. of all of those things. So I don't know if that's like the root cause. I don't know that that's the root cause. Yeah. I don't know what the root cause is. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's come up as a debate internally as we look at what people want and what they need and, and understanding how to help. Because I think to your point, to your point before moving from the model that we have of status quo, decision-making accountability, chains of command, et cetera, to a different model is a big shift. It's a shift for the ego. It's a shift psychologically. It's a shift in clarity. And frankly, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Like, like it takes work to sit down and figure this shit out. And then you have to continually keep it moving as you, as you grow and scale. And it works great as we've illustrated, but it is, it is not a, it's not a low commitment kind of thing. And and just hearing, right. And hearing folks say like, you know, decision-making is the problem we start to we start to examine like is there is the fact that we can't make decisions a symptom of the fact that we don't have clear roles like even yeah. if they didn't have decision rights is it a symptom of the fact that like we haven't done enough principal work or priority work or strategy work is it a symptom of our inability to be in conflict with each other or to have real conversations like how much i guess how much of it can be solved without actually figuring out how to make decisions together, mm-hmm. how much of it can be solved without actually clarifying decision rights, or is that actually the thing and then everything else flows from that, you know? Yeah. I mean, certainly I, my opinion is that's part of the thing because mm-hmm. like what we don't have in most companies is a portfolio of the roles that we're holding what they are on the hook to deliver to the team or organization and what the attendant authority is to deliver those yeah. accountabilities. So yeah. in in absence of that, you've got a lot of soupiness. And I think then what you see in most, you know, most teams that decide that they're going to like really figure this decision-making thing out, go to <laughs> bullshit frameworks like Racy. And I, there's another one that people keep showing me and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I got it. Um, oh God, I can't wait to talk about that. Which is very it's it's very contenty. It's mm-hmm. like we're going to get an inventory of every decision that there is and we're going to decide about the decider for that decision, which yes. is a mirror of a monolithic job description and a static org chart and 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 the right way to do that obviously is by like role container. Like these are the types of decisions that this role yep. makes, or this yep. is the category, or this is the threshold. Not like Rodney can hire this one person. It's like mm-hmm. Rodney can hire roles up to this level or yep. up to this cost yep. or whatever the thing is. So like part of the issue I think is, is that. And then the other thing that I thought of while you were talking, that I, this could be so, so stupid. So, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Sometimes I think that as leadership in companies and in and honestly, like in startups in all of the kinds of companies, have have gotten more and more hip to like not top down, not command and control, not yeah. overly directive, not like traditional management, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
they don't know what to do instead of that. Right. And so what I see a lot is just like wobbliness. Yep. So it's like they they know that they, they don't that. they know that they want to be like a servant leader. And what they think that means is trying to like coach someone to an answer rather than be like, actually, this is my decision and here's the decision. Yep. And so I don't that might just be bullshit, but I feel like especially because we tend to work with companies who are either more progressive or want to be more progressive. Yeah. I feel like there's at a team lead and up level, there's like a there's a desire to not be directive but then they end up not being decisive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, you can be inclusive and decisive. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. And I'm wondering actually if the other framework you were seeing is ARPA, no. which is the RACI alternative. There's DRIs, there's RACI, there's ARPA. It's DRIs. Um, yeah, so directly responsible individual. Yes. Yeah, the ARPA one is accountable, responsible participant advisor. Sure. Which is trying to make racy better, which is sort of like trying to make a shit sandwich better by adding some mayonnaise. I mean, it has better. Um, I like those words better. Yeah, those are better words. I also um, like mayonnaise. So there you go. There you go. But yeah, I think that what I what I have been wondering lately is, is, is the decision-making problem... Well, really, it's... I mean, you sort of divide it into three pieces, right? Like, what are we deciding... How yeah. are we deciding and who yeah. is deciding? Yeah. And what's interesting is racy work really focuses on like the who part, like who's doing what. So the who and the what. Yeah. Only. It doesn't say it doesn't say shit about how. Yeah. So like you're the you're the accountable person or the responsible person. Now you now what? <laughs> now right. you just decide, I guess. Yeah. Um and so so that is it's it's essentially giving like full decision authority only to individuals yeah. based on these frameworks, which I think is very, very interesting. It's very one note. What we're basically saying is like, we're going to take every decision space like you just described, or maybe even every decision type, which is way too many, and we're going to give it to someone. Mm-hmm. So then it's like someone is responsible for each thing or someone is the decider in each scenario. There's no yeah. scenarios in a racy model where it's like, oh, that's a team decision. Right. Right? right, which is sort of what I think is so interesting and unusual is that it just doesn't even make space for that. And and obviously ARPA is the same thing. One of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about with you is the difference in both models between accountable and responsible. Ugh. I mean, what what is why? that about? What why? is it about, right? Well, I mean, it's nonsense. It's about someone it's about the chest to poke throat to choke <laughs> versus the person who's actually going to do the work. Right. And the eventuality that in a lot of companies, those aren't the same person. Which I, I guess, I guess the purpose it's serving to tie back to our previous conversation and, and most of the, basically folks, this episode is like, explain the way the world works to Aaron. Because I'm just like, <laughs> why, how, what the fuck is going on? But here's what's happening is you're right. The responsible person is the person who is doing shit. Uh-huh. Day to day, making decisions yeah. on the on the operational surface of the project, and the accountable person is the person who is up the chain from that. And if somebody yeah, they're going to sit intervene, in the meeting and get grilled about it. Yeah, supersede, intervene, intervene, tie break, deal with it, take the heat. Like take essentially, heat. Uh, essentially, what that is doing is it's saying we have to connect the chain because yes. if we just have a responsible person, who who are they? Who do they connect to next, right? Like there's no sure. there's no way to know. And yeah, I think, and we would hate to like have them in the meeting with the leadership team getting the questions directly. Right. That would be 
bananas. Right. And, and that's what not I think, a peer to that team. We need a correct. peer in that room. And I think what, what I'm pulling apart here is that there's actually a structural component to this that's really significant, which means if you look at our structure at the ready, for example, and you say like there's a responsible party for some decision in a circle, mm-hmm. we kind of know what the chain is from there. Like they're responsible to the circle. If the mm-hmm. circle is fucked or unhappy or not performing, they're responsible to the super circle all the mm-hmm. way up to the board. And we don't have to worry about like what who the accountable party is because we mm-hmm. know that that like that is sort of the the chain of accountability that maps to the the way we've concentrated authority. Mm-hmm. I feel like in a bigger system, what tends to happen is like this is a cross functional project. The way we're structured in teams doesn't really make sense. So even if something does go wrong on this project, who would be the, like, which is the circle that's responsible, which is the team that would be kind of looking after that? Because actually it cuts across teams and even the teams themselves are very functional. So they may not even have a 360 perspective on that outcome. So then, so then it's like the accountable person is basically fudging to make up for that structural deficiency, Yeah, which is like, all right, well, ultimately I guess, you know, it's going to be this person that is that point of control. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Well, and it's, I mean, that's why most leadership meetings are a total waste of time. Woof. Because you just have an accountable, you have a group of accountable people who are there to represent work that others are responsible for and then ask each other gotcha questions <laughs> about work that they didn't do and then feel really great when someone doesn't have an answer. So yeah, that's all, that's all trash. And I think that your point about these frameworks that is right, in my opinion, is we really are quite limited in gen pop about the how. Right. Like gen pop is just like, I, I say yes or no, that's the decision. Right. Yes or right. no. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how the we do scope it. of decision science today. Yeah, that's the scope of, yeah, exactly. Or in of, practice. Of well understood decision science. Yeah. And, um, and that puts so much pressure on the individual to get it right. Like it assumes that there is a right. It assumes that one person can know. And then it assumes that that person is going to, in a probably binary way, say yes or no, which incidentally is why I believe we get so many delays in decision-making and why every team on earth is like bottlenecks in decision-making is the yes. problem. Yes. Because I don't know and I don't want to say yes or no and I don't want to be accountable for the thing. <laughs> and that's why I end up having all these side conversations to get myself enough consensus and enough information and advice and buy-in and fingerprints that I feel like I can be out on a limb. Yes, 100%. And now I have a guest idea. Great. I think I think I have a guest idea and I have like a last line of questioning for you. Is this like the old the old show format where we're going to do a guest interview on the back of this? Right, on the or back. But it'll be a whole other episode and it'll happen nother, in like okay. 8 weeks. So it's not like um, that at all. I think I think we should have Annie Duke on the show. Annie Duke is the author of Thinking in Bets and How to Decide, which are both decision science books and and Annie was a poker champion. Nice. Who who has a lot of like actual lived experience with making good decisions under pressure, et cetera, and has done a lot of research since then about like the world of business and politics and sports and all that shit. So yeah. it would be interesting to have someone on who actually knows how to make a decision alone. Yeah. Um, because we know how to make a decision together. That's that's mm-hmm. our bailiwick. It would be cool to talk to someone about when you have the decision right, what are some ways to approach making good decisions alone? 
Yeah. And then you kind of put the two together and it's like in a healthy system, which I think we, uh, we aspire to, to have and to get, you know, help our listeners to achieve. You have a lot of both going on. You have a lot of decision rights that are clear, that are rooted in a, in an individual, but not just in managers, you know, almost exclusively in roles. Yeah. And you have a lot of collective decisions still that exist that you hold together and we know how to make those. So, so I think that that might be an interesting like perspective we haven't had on the show. I think that would be cool. And I feel that we would be remiss if we did ah, not talk about the remiss. fact that a lot of what exacerbates everything that we're talking about in this episode is that we try to make decisions that are too big all yes. at once. Yes. And so it's like, I feel like because I'm so internally focused right now, like half my conversations at the ready right now are someone being like, I need your advice about this thing because I'm not quite sure. And mm-hmm. I'm like, at what smaller scale yeah. could you be sure e- right. without my advice? Yes. Like, what could you just confidently go try that if it is totally borked, it doesn't matter and you can live with it. Yeah. And like, that's how you get to more, I think more individual action and more agency is by scoping down and running rather than, you know, letting things be overly complicated and then really feeling like you need a lot of advice and support. That I'm glad you said that because it, it brings up another conversation that's been bouncing around about not just the time horizon or the risk surface of a decision, but actually just literally making smaller decisions in, in like number of words. So there's been Mm. a lot of talk about like, when you look at a big long process or policy or role agreement, Mm -hmm. is there value in potentially breaking it up into smaller decisions? Yeah. So it's like, Hey, here's the role and the purpose. That's it for now. You good with this? Everybody good with this? Yes. Okay, great. Now, a week later, here's some responsibilities. Let's just look at these. And mm-hmm. then we kind of make a decision about that. And, and to do that essentially for any of our different agreement types to, to get more atomic and kind of atomize them so that the amount of load is lower. Yeah. And I think I, I sort of see that both ways where on the one hand, I, I agree because I love atomizing things. It's like a big theme on this show. But on the other hand, the, you can get to a point where it's too many decisions instead yeah. of too big of a decisions. And you're like, oh, yeah. I don't want to look at every bullet point one at a time. Right, I want right, to like right. look at this thing in aggregate and understand it. So I, I don't really have a thesis yet about where I land on that spectrum, but I've been playing with what's the right size for yeah. something. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and I think even though it's annoying and probably not interesting for 90% of the world, I feel like if you do over-atomize something, then you really learn what the actual correct basket or container should have been. Right, right. So, you know, I, like, you don't want to get, you don't want to get so fiddly about it that everybody is just exhausted. But that being said, I feel like, you know, it's interesting when you, I just did a thing with two leaders who like co-lead a company and they were like parsing their roles into smaller and smaller pieces and sort of got to a point where they're like, well, how fine do we have to cut up the strategy Mm -hmm. work? And I was Mm -hmm. like, until it's clear to you what those roles are and who's going to hold them. Right. right. And it's like, you know, we, we don't, we don't have to live with them cut up into 15 pieces, but we might need to have the conversation where it gets cut up into 15 pieces so that I know, am I the person who is doing market analysis are you the person who's doing the at the annual plan? Am I the person who's it, like like what part, like you know it's really hard when you have two leaders to be like oh 
she owns strategy and he doesn't. I, it just doesn't work like that. So I think sometimes the atomization of these things and who has the final say, mm-hmm. and that's a big thing like that we teach clients all the time. Mm. I learned this at MG is like when someone says, oh, like Rodney has a decision right over hiring. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not clear enough. Like right. who, who can I hire? Can I deviate from the interview process? Do I have to ask if we can afford it? Do I have to like pay any attention to Jedi? Do like what a clearly hiring is not anybody's decision right. So right. we have to at least get, we have to at least cut it fine enough so that we can answer the question, if nobody else came to work that day, could Rodney say yes? Yeah. And that's, and what's funny about the examples you just gave is that's not even just role work. No. You were talking about a bunch of different constraints, right? Yeah. There's policies, there's processes that play a role in what you just talked about. Totally. And then there's the role itself. And like, you actually need this concert of things to understand your space. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, I have this right, but it's augmented by these constraints and I have, you know, these limitations. So I do, I do think that's right. Okay. I have one last question for you and the, and don't, don't answer too quickly. Cause I think okay. this is actually like a Jeez. super, I want like your best, your best thinking. Don't I know you're about that. to go on break. You're about to go oh, away. So, so this rude. is like punching it. Um, if you're a team, let's say you're a 50 person team who is growing and new to all this and decision making the traditional way has started to break and you don't want to just add layers and play the old game, but you don't know what the new game is. What's the easiest way to make decision making better? What's like the, the lightest lift step that you could take that would be like that improved things or even what you think your shortlist is like, where does your head go instinctually? My head goes to, I'm assuming this team doesn't have real work done. Correct. Okay. Right. Of course. I mean, they have um, job descriptions, they have job yeah, yeah. titles, right? Yeah. But okay. not real role work. So until we've done role, until we've done roles, we have to do souls. Like we uh-huh. have to just base it right. on the individual until we sort that part of the shop out, which is not ideal, but not terrible. <laughs> okay. The lightest lift, in my opinion, that will get you the farthest is within a team generate the top 10 decisions that slow the team down because Mm -hmm. of lack of clarity. Okay. The move is like, people will say, let's write all the decisions down. That's racy shit. Don't do that. Just focus on like the five things that take 80% of the time. Yep. Because the other 100 things take 20% of the time. And they might not be perfect, but don't worry about that. And for those five things, just pick a person who gets to make the final call, even if no one shows up for work that day, and then do the same thing Mm cross-functionally. Get the cross-functional leadership team together and go, what is the 20% of decisions that that give us 80% of the heartburn? Mm. And just pick a person for now to make the final call with a commitment to retrospection in a quarter. Nice. I like that. What would you say? Um, did you did you take space and time to think about it to give the best answer ever? No, I don't cheat like that. <sighs> um, I well, I'll tell you this. One part of me, <laughs> one part of me has been leaning towards what you mentioned first as not present, which is role work. 
Mm. Um, like, is mm-hmm. there is there a light version of role work that's not heavy handed that isn't that doesn't take two weeks to sort yeah, out? Yeah, that's cool. But that can be done really quickly, where it's just like, let's just do the the role work arc that the ready teaches in two hours, and just see like how far can we get. Just like the, you know, these are the, these are the roles in the mix and this is, and this is what their purpose is. And this is not even responsibilities, just decision rights. So it's like name, purpose, decision rights, that's it. And then you just see like, what does that get you? What kind Mm -hmm. of mileage does it get you? And I think in some ways it's the inverse of what you just described. What I like about what you suggested is that there's something really interesting about tuning into the pain of where are we actually being held back? Like, where does it hurt the most? Instead of trying to boil the ocean of like, well, let's just do everything, right? Because yeah. role work really does try to cover a lot of ground. It does. And and what I like about that is like, don't don't worry about covering so much ground. Let's just worry about what's in the way, which yeah. feels very brave new worky to me. Yeah. And I think two things that I've seen happen when you do it the way I described it. One is when people have the experience of like, oh, we made a decision in two hours that we've been pondering for two months. <laughs> it gives them a lot of appetite to do more, which is cool. Right. And two is, if we just pick a person and we're like, you know, it's hers. Um, Usually by the time we are ready to do role work, which almost inevitably we will realize we need to do, there hopefully is a bunch of clarity because we just tried it. We just tried on the gnarliest decisions for size. And then it's like, oh, what we learned is that like Rodney should not hold that role. Finance should hold that role Mm because Rodney spent a bunch of money she shouldn't have spent. Yeah, yeah. And so ideally then when we get to role work, it's like, oh, we have a little, we got a little stack of data that's like pretty spicy because it was our (laughs) thorniest stuff to inform what we write down. Yeah. That's cool. I don't know. I'm going to do some experimenting with that. Okay. Um, Have we done it? I think we did it. Yeah. This feels, this is a, this is a pause point. And tomorrow we're doing an interview episode, which will be our last episode for a month. We will take a break. Bye. You, the listener, will hear episodes while we're gone for a while, but we will be not recording. So that is Poor Aaron has been just like recording like an absolute maniac with me (laughs) so that I can take a full month off. And so that you all don't have to suffer without us during that full month. We we realized today that we have done two and a half years of this show without a one-month break ever. So it'll be a novel and wonderful thing. And without ever like having a full out fight on the air. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. There's time. There's time. <laughs> I mean, the all in guys only made it to like 85 episodes. Yeah. I mean, that's why people have editors, I think. But we, we don't even have anything on the cutting room floor that I sounds know. anything different than what you hear here, folks. What you're I hearing know, the is biggest the real criticism shit. is always that we agree too much. Yeah. Lame. All right. Well, we both agree that this is over. So why don't you ask the kind (laughs) folks for a review? Kind folks, could we please have a review as my um, August mini sabbatical gift to me? Mm. A review of five stars, no less than five stars, please. Thank you. So that you can come back to more listeners. Yeah, that would be so nice if I came back tanned and refreshed and relaxed and just with like twice as many of you out there. Yes, yes. And then we can talk about all these things again and do the 201 version. Can't or wait. the 301 version. I'll be uh, here. All right. Well, as always, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good and equal in volume. Brave New Work <laughs> is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>